Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the point is made that the root of our sin is that we do not desire God as He's worthy. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Our Foremost Evil. right now turn our attention to the word of the living God Romans chapter 3 let's begin reading in verse 9 we'll go down through verse 20 and then we need to pray so verse 9 what then are we better than they not at all for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written there is none righteous not even one There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Please bow with me. Oh, Lord, our God, we are desperate for you in ways that we don't even comprehend. And so, God, we beg you right now, please give us grace. God, I, I want to just ask for the greatest gift you can possibly give. Father, we, sons and daughters of you who are gathered here, God, we just collectively say, let all money burn Let the houses and possessions of this earth just be trashed. It is not what we desire. They are not what we seek. Oh God, we want you. So Father, I beg, give us more of yourself. Father, give us, give us what only you can empower. Father, I pray that you will work in such a way that we come to understand your truths. But more than that, you tell us that supernatural things happen when we look to your word and when you bless. So God, if you don't bless, this will be a waste of time and we'll all go home exactly the same as we came, maybe even hardened and more prideful than when we came. But God, we beg, do a work to humble us. God, we ask for happy things like encouragement and joy, but Father, we also know we need conviction of sin and to, and to see more of our uncleanness before you and your great holiness. So God, please work all these things. Show us your glory. Show us your holiness. Show us that you are the great treasure and you are to be feared. Uh, Father, the work that needs to happen for me to preach, please give me grace, O God, and all of us to receive your word. We love you, Lord. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. If you're going to do anything in this life that involves humans, so that would be everyone except hermits, you're going to have to understand human nature. It doesn't matter what you participate in. If you're going to be married and it go well, 
you're going to have to understand human nature. If you're going to have children in this go in a joyful kind of way, you're going to have to know human nature, work, friends, every single ministry. You're going to have to know how humans are wired up. What makes us tick? How do, how do we respond to certain situations? How do you encourage someone? How do you lead? It's all related to our, our nature. Uh, the former football coach who shows up for the first day now coaching the girls' basketball team and screams till his face turns red and his veins pop and can't figure out why they're not motivated doesn't understand human nature. We're complex creatures. You know, really a great deal of marriage is trying to figure each other out, how to serve one another. And so isn't it amazing that the Bible describes human nature so accurately that whenever you read through the scriptures, God, God is doing these kinds of big teachings and showing us these big doctrines. And by these doctrines, we understand reality. You know, sometimes people think that the study of doctrine is like really impractical, that that's what, you know, like theologians who sit in offices all day, that's, that's what they like to do. The rest of us, we just need what's practical. Like, give me, give me seven tips for how to be a better basketball coach. And there's a place for that kind of thing. The Bible will occasionally do some of that, but what the Bible does is show us this world. Most significantly, the Bible shows you God. The Bible shows you who he is, and at the end of the day, who God is, is affects everything and determines all things. Marriage is based on the character of God. Parenting is based on the character of God. The law of God is based on the character of God. You have been made in the image of God. Who he is determines absolutely every aspect of this world. You understand God and you understand the cosmos. And that's what the Bible is primarily doing. It is God's revelation of himself. But along the way, God also shows you, you. And the truth about you, it's unexpected it's complex. For those of you who have been in the faith for a long time, do you remember some of those times that you were reading the Bible through, maybe for the first time, and you encountered some of those passages where you went, I don't, I don't know about this. Humans don't really act that way, like the Bible is saying they act. <laughs> Give it a couple decades, and you've seen it with your own eyes. And then you come to just be amazed. How can the Bible so accurately show who we truly are? This is what the Bible is doing. The student of the Bible is not deluded by the false ideas of who humans are and how we act. We're not deluded by false ideas of how the world truly is. Through the scripture, we see who God is. We see what the world is like and we see what we are like. Because even though I made a joke about the hermit, if you are going to live a life in joy, strength, and honor God, you're going to have to know thyself. And the Bible shows you, you. Well, as we've been walking through this passage on the sinfulness of man, the sinfulness of mankind, mankind under sin, the depravity that has affected every single part of our body and soul, you're coming to understand human nature. You're coming to understand you, things as they really are. 
You Christian, for you who are confident that you are walking with Christ and you're in covenant with Christ when you were in the flesh, before you came to faith, you probably thought of yourself as having a heart of gold, like I did. And if you're here with us this morning and maybe you're new to studying the Bible, you've never like really gone in depth to look at these kinds of things. You might've walked in this door this morning thinking of yourself as having a good heart, but you know, maybe just needing a little, a little encouragement, a little help. And here we just read a passage of scripture that has really taken your self-esteem down about 99 notches and telling you, you do not have a heart of gold. You have a heart that resists God. You have lips that lie feet that run to evil. And the Bible is showing you something very different than what the world is and what your own thoughts are. The Bible is telling you that you have insulted and broken the law of the living and holy God who is to be feared and out of his holiness, he has a wrath coming on all who have rebelled and resisted against him. And the Bible declares that if you do not somehow find a way to be at peace with God, you really are facing an eternity of the worst kind of suffering. But the part that's not in this passage, but is yet to come as we study through the book of Romans and really is what all of the Bible is about is that God has made a way for you to be at peace with him, but it is through the blood of his son and you coming to receive Christ by trusting in him. The Bible says you can be saved and made right with God. But the reason that you need this salvation the reason why you need to be delivered out of something and into this thing that God has made possible is because verses 10 through 18 tell you who you are and who you are is not right. And we've been walking through this passage and here's what we've seen it do. This, this message today is really an extension of last Sunday. So I've said that there are four main truths that are taught in verses 9 through 20 here. We've looked at the first two of them. Uh, the first uh, truth that we saw in there is all mankind is in sin, meaning every people group and every soul. But we also saw this, all of man is in sin, meaning this, from head to toe, Inside and outside, every single part of us has been affected by the fall. Okay, and that's, you know, kind of theoretical language. Here's what that practically means. Every single part of who we are, we now use in a way that is in opposition to God. The minds that were made to comprehend and love him, the feet that were made to go into good works and take us onto the things that honor him, we have now used in opposition to him. And where we come to today in verse 18, we're primarily going to just think carefully on verse 18. We've got a way that the passage sort of summarizes our problem. So I want to spend this morning just specifically meditating on this part right here. As we go through the book of Romans and we, we study some big sections, there's occasionally this time where some sentence or some truth is so big that it's going to be really helpful for us to just pause and say, okay, let me just take a step back here and let me think on this one word. Let's think on this one truth. So here is the, the truth we're going to just slow down and think on today. It's verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does that mean? And what does God want us to see? 
Well, I'm going to divide our time like this if you're a note taker, and that's awesome. Let me give you three primary things we're going to look at as we walk through this. Number one, we're going to talk about the sin of our perspective. Number two, God is worthy to be sought and feared. And then number three, our foremost sin is that we have failed to seek God as the great treasure he is. And we have failed to fear God as he is infinitely worthy to be feared. If you didn't get that, I can tell you more as we go through this. And points two and three will kind of be mingled together. But let's get started and think through so that we understand verse 18. So here's number one, the sin of our perspective. So from head to toe, inside and outside, the Bible says that we are in opposition to God. Well, here's where the passage ends as it walked us through our, our hands and our feet and our minds and our wills and every part of us. Here's, here's where it ends. It ends with our eyes. Now, by all means, we sin with our literal eyes. Let me camp on that for just a second. As the Bible describes that all sin all specific acts of rebellion against God can all be rooted down to three basic desires, three basic lusts that happen inside of them. One whole category of that is one that the Bible calls the lust of the eyes. With our literal eyes, physical eyes, we can look on objects or people and covet after them. We can go to the store and see things we don't have. And then we begin to ache for them. And I got this itch inside of me now. Advertisers make their billions based on this principle right here. Show it and make it look beautiful and make it look like if I have this, then I'll finally be happy and ultimately satisfied. The itch is created. The burger commercial comes on at 10 o'clock at night. So we'll want to rush out and go get it. It's creating desire so that we will then want to go fulfill that desire. This is the same kind of thing of why the scripture says that men are to be careful that they not look lustfully on women because of the lust of the eyes. God has given the gift of delight and pleasure in looking, but he has created that to be within marriage. When it goes outside of marriage, then it becomes sin. This is why women are called to be careful in how they dress, so as not to create stumbling blocks by dressing sensually, because there is a thing called lust of the eyes. So there's a, a literal way that we sin with our eyes. But the Bible also describes kind of a symbolic way, a metaphorical way. And I believe that's primarily what's being talked about here in verse 18. So here's how scripture will speak of our metaphorical eyes. If you will, leave here for a second and let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jump to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse 19 there and read. But before we do... Take a glance at verse 22. We're going to read a paragraph here. Take a look at verse uh, 22. Just glance at it for a second. That first statement there, the eye is the lamp of the body. Jesus is talking about how you see the world. And yeah, that involves our physical eyes, but we can also talk about the way that a blind man sees the world. We're talking about our perspective, our perception. We, we talk a lot about worldview, that what you believe internally 
affects how you see and interpret all things. The atheist and the Christian can see the same sunset and think very different thoughts. The atheist sees the sunset and thinks, my, what a unique arrangement of stardust. The Christian sees the sunset and has a moment of worship. What an amazing God. You interpret that based on what you believe internally. And so scripture shows what's happening in who you are, what's happening in the heart determines how you perceive, how you see, what your perspective of all things is. And so one of, one of the reasons I'm pointing this out is, is watch this. That statement comes as we read, it's sandwiched in between verses that talk about what you treasure and who you fear and how you look at the world, which is exactly what is happening in Romans 3. It's pretty brilliant here, okay? So verse 19, Matthew 6, 19, look what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the deepest statements in the whole Bible. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here's what Jesus is getting at. And, and how all of those things are linked together. What you supremely value, what you supremely delight in, will determine how you see the world. It will determine who you serve. It will determine what you seek. The follower of Christ and those who reject Christ, we're all looking at the same world, but we see different things. And so back in Romans 3, here's what the text is saying. When the natural man, so let me pause on that for a second, as the Bible describes, uses many different words to describe the Christian, the redeemed, those in Christ, the regenerate, those born again, and those without Christ, sometimes the word the natural man is used for that. The natural man looks at the world, but does not see the glory of God, does not see the wisdom of God, does not see the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the unlimited power of God as he should, and so does not fear God. By the way, a little bit of an aside, one of the ways that the Bible explains the new birth, remember we, we spent some time on the new birth uh, last Sunday, another way that the Bible describes that is that we come to be given new eyes to see, like the scales falling off of Paul's eyes when he was converted. God did this physically in order to show something spiritual. It's a regular thing, I mean pretty consistent, that people who come to faith in Christ for that first time and their whole world is turned upside down, they will regularly say, they don't even know that the Bible uses this language, but they'll regularly say things like, it's like I see everything differently now. And we're like, yes, you've been given new eyes to see. But where we are apart from Christ, 
So if you're here this morning and you have not yet responded to God to come to him to be saved, then this is where you are this morning. But for you Christian who are confident you're walking with him, this is who we used to be, but it's also the nature we still fight and war every single day. The natural man, the sinful fallen flesh, we look at the world and all we see is the physical. And we do not see what God intended. We do not see through the glass into heaven as we're supposed to. The text says, apart from Christ, we fail to see as we ought to see. We fail to seek God as he's worthy of. We fail to fear God as he is worthy of. So here's the second point as we continue on. God is worthy to be sought and feared. To sum up the chief of our evils, it is this. Yours and mine, our foremost sin is that you have not responded to God as he's worthy of. That's it. When you bring it down to the root, we have many other sins. We sin against one another. We sin in our minds. We have, we have thousands of ways that we specific have actions that are rebellious against God. But whenever you bring it down to the root, all of those actions come out of one root. We have failed to recognize and failed to respond to God as he's worthy of. God is the fountain of delight. And we play in the mud and think it's better. God is where all joy comes from and we get money and get giddy. God is the great treasure, food and sex and money and houses and marriage and love and taste buds were nothing until he designed them. He created them in his own mind and then spoke them into existence. There is no pleasure that does not have God as its author. And in knowing God personally, there is pleasure and delight that is greater than if you were to add up all of the cosmos's pleasures, all of the, to combine them into one moment of delight and multiply them times the stars in the sky, still God is more delightful. And man in sin doesn't care. Man in sin, we think of sex and food and delights and things that are not necessarily evil. God has created a world of delight that he gave as a gift to enjoy, but never meant to be sought as the great treasure. We see these things and we make them what we are about. Man in sin treats God lightly. Man in sin lowers God to a tame, weak, wussy genie. The big grandpa in the sky who just occasionally is there for me when I need a, when I need a help. Rather than seeing the lion of the tribe of Judah whom all the nations will bow before and weep in joy as they see him, that angels and men when they behold him gasp and tremble. Man in sin takes the great and glorious God and we like to reduce him down to a weaker God. We fail to seek him as the great treasure and we fail to fear him as he is worthy. That's our foremost sin. All other actions come out of how we have responded to God. 
God is worthy of worship, obedience, adoration, love, honor, glory. But instead of giving God what he is worthy of, we have resisted him and we have given that affection to things he created, things of a fraction of his glory. God alone is worthy. Flip, flip with me to a, a place, uh, Revelation, if you will, for a moment. Let me show this to you in another way. Some, sometimes the only way to get a sense of something is to see people's reaction and response. We've, we've said that before. One of the cool things that happens in the book of Revelation, go to chapter four, please. One of the things that happens in Revelation is we have these glimpses into heaven. We have these glimpses into what's going on even right now. Those who see what we do not see, Right now we live by faith and not by sight, but the day is coming for you, Christian. When you die, you will see the glory of God. What is the response of those who see him right now? Angels and men, Revelation chapter four, starting verse two there, we're gonna read a section here. So this is the Holy Spirit giving John a vision and getting to see things and he just describes what he sees. So verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. By the way, these are the same creatures you read about in the book of Ezekiel, other places in scripture. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within and day and night. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. The scene continues into chapter five. And it's one of the clearest descriptions of the divinity of Jesus that we have in all of the Bible. Because in the same way that angels and men see the glory of God and fall on their faces in a joy so big and so deep, if you experienced it right now, you'd explode in a richness, in a satisfaction, in an ecstasy of being in the presence of God, they fall on their faces in the same way that all of heaven bows before God the Father. In chapter five, all angels and men fall before Jesus the Son and give him worship. Jesus stands to take his place of glory and heaven celebrates. Look at chapter five, chapter verse nine there. 
And they, this is a multitude that no one could count. The scripture says from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And as you continue to look down through here, there's more worship and what they cry out, worthy is the lamb. God is worthy. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is worthy of worship? What it means is that there's a way that God should be treated because he deserves it. Because his character is worthy of it. That you should not respond to God in worship. I'm not telling you you should love God because it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But you have to feel the fact that he is worthy that if you were to comprehend his character, if you were to see him, you would be inexpressibly drawn to him. I'm telling you, you should love God because if you were to take all of the people of history who were worthy to be loved, who were great, so you should love them because they were lovely. If you added up all of their worth and took at times whatever number you can contrive, quintillion whatever, still God is more worthy of worship and love and awe and wonder and adoration. You know, when we're treated below what we should, it burns us up. Um, husbands, when you treat your wife awesome, you know, it's like that one time out of a decade, we treat them awesome and she disrespects you. How do you feel? Wives, when you treat your husbands awesome and then he ignores or fails to appreciate you, what, what does that do inside of us? It burns us up. We, we, we hate it. We're so angry when someone fails to give us what they ought to. When you have blessed someone and they respond in curse, why does it eat at us? Because we recognize it's not fair. And another way of saying it's not fair is to say that it's not righteous. It's not what's right. Well, listen to me. God is not just commanding worship. It's not just, well, you ought to do it even though you don't want to. What scripture is showing is he's worthy. He's worthy of worship. Worship is the highest affection that is possible. It is to desire and treasure in the greatest of way as that which is most precious to you. You know, we, we have varying levels of loving and honoring and valuing people. You are to love your neighbor, but you love your friend more than your neighbor. And that's not evil. That's a regular thing. You love your children more than you love your friend. You love your wife or husband in a, in a greater kind of intimacy way than you do your children. What do you call the highest love? the highest desire, the highest value, the highest treasure that you're capable of, that supreme affection, what do you call it? It's worship. Now, I know that you might have a different kind of definition in your mind. Sometimes when people hear the word worship because of like what they like or not like, they think of like something that's miserable. There might even be someone here this morning. You're not really enjoying yourself right now. You're here just because you got to be, and maybe you'd rather be doing anything else. Well, you're here 
but you're not worshiping, not God anyway. But in your hearts, you desire something supremely. You love and honor, and if, and if when angels look in at your life and they see your life is about pursuing this, that is what you worship. That is your God. Be it money, sex, food, pleasure, power, delight, whatever it is, whatever you supremely desire, whatever you supremely seek, this is what you worship. What the Bible is showing here is God alone is worthy of that kind of affection. God is worthy of that kind of supreme treasuring, of that kind of honor. God is worthy for all of the nations to know him. Jesus is worthy for all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations to bow before him and love him. God is worthy for all of the cosmos, every star, every planet, all the fish of the sea, to all live for the glory of God, sing his praises, and he is worthy for all to die for him. He's not just important. When, when you hear that kind of language, Jesus is important. That is missing the point. Listen, oxygen is important. God is worthy. Worthy for all of the cosmos to bow before him. No one else is worthy like this. To say that God and God alone is worthy of worship and glory is to put him in a category all by himself, from him, through him, and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. All beauty has originated from him, he who is the creator of beauty. So while you admire something on earth, what we are really seeing is just a fraction, a droplet that has come from who he is, the author and sustainer of all beauty. He's worthy. So that means some things. It means a bunch of things, but let me point out just two quick things from the passage that's in here as we've looked at the sin and where our sin roots from. First of all, it means that God is the great treasure, the fountain of delight, and so he is to be sought. He is to be sought as the great treasure. That is what it means to recognize it and to respond to him rightly. There is a delight that is greater. If you were to take all delights of all of history, add them all up, there is a delight that is greater than the sum of all of them. And it is the delight of knowing God. There is nothing that will make your soul happy like knowing God will. And so here, here's what I mean by that. In Philippians 2, scripture says this, I count all things as trash compared to the joy of knowing Christ. I, I count it all as nothing, all trophies, all power, all food, all sex, all, all good that is on the earth. I count it all as nothing compared to the supreme delight of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then this next phrase might be his most significant. I mean, he's already said something pretty powerful. He's already said that knowing Christ is a greater pleasure, a greater delight than any delight on this earth. But then he says this next statement, and the fellowship of his sufferings. What does he mean by that? He means this. 
Knowing Christ is so great, I will do whatever it takes to get more of him. Oh, suffering and pain? Give me more of Christ? Then give me more suffering. Oh, I'll gladly take more pain if it gives me more of Christ. That's a very different way of looking at God than shallow, superficial religion. That's a very different way of looking at God than the typical American Christianity. You know, a lot of times the way that the gospel is explained, here's, here's the distorted version. Maybe a parent speaks to a child and says something like, Honey, I know you wish you could live here forever, because that's what we all want. We don't ever want to leave here. But you got to die. So if you're going to die, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And hey, in heaven, God's got lots of cool games for you. There's going to be fun and water slides, and you're going to do anything you want to do, and there's candy. You want candy, don't you? Well, if you want that eternal candy, then you need to believe on Jesus so you don't go to hell. You don't want to go to hell, do you? And in opposition to that, Scripture says, if I got to bleed to get more of Jesus, then give me blood. Give me suffering. He's greater than you've ever thought. He's more amazing. And, and what that means is, is this. There is coming a day, Christian, that even when we don't get it now, there is coming a day when we are there with God. When we are in the presence of his glory, we look on him face to face, experience whatever that must feel like to be overwhelmed by the glory of God like the angels and men in Revelation 4 and 5. At that moment, you will have greater delight than the sum of all of history's delight combined together and you will know he is the great treasure. But what is amazing is that God lets us taste it now. It's tasted incompletely. We don't, we don't get the full swig, but just to taste. But to those who do taste, what we find is so good and so addictive. I want more. And this leads to a pursuit of him. Now, on another day, I will like to preach on how you get that perspective. And I'll tell you that you're not going to get that by toddler-style pursuits of God, of just showing up to church on Sunday kinds of Christianity. You're going to have to start reading Scripture like it's water, and buddy, you've been in the desert. Going to have to start going after God in a way that you just never have before. And the more that we pursue Him all in, like He is the great treasure, we get more and more of Him. But still, it is just a taste. But I'm getting off track. That's not the sermon today. But listen, guys, this is not just theoretical. Like, this is not just theology because it's interesting. This is as practical as it can possibly get. Because tomorrow morning, you're going to get hit with temptation. You're gonna, it's going to start all over again, another week of temptation. The temptation is always this. This thing can give you pleasure. How are you going to beat it? I can look at pornography and it'll give pleasure. How are you going to beat it? You're not going to beat it with, it's the right thing to do. That works for about a week. What you got to see is there is something that is so good it's worth bleeding for.
There is a God who is so good. Every time I get near him, I just want more. There is delight. There is joy. God does not speak to you in scripture merely in terms of the right thing to do. He holds your joy before you and says, come to me and get the joy. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am where the rest is. Come to me and drink now knowing that the full is yet to come. Do you know why we struggle so much with our temptations? It's because we've come to believe in a weak God who offers something, I guess it's better than hell, but what he holds you, holds out to you is your everlasting joy. Do you believe this? Do you believe that obedience is going to give you a greater delight than the pleasure of sin ever could? Friend, we have sinned by failing to seek God as the great treasure that he is. And then here's number two. God is worthy to be feared. He's worthy to be feared as the sovereign, awesome, consuming fire, holy God. Here's what, here's what it means to fear God. To fear God is to see him for who he truly is. And God has given us ways that we can know this. Creation internal witness, and most importantly, the scriptures. But there is even enough in creation to see that this God who made all things, he's big. He's big. It is to see who he truly is and to recognize his glory, his unlimited power, his holiness, his wrath, his breathtaking, terrifying greatness, and to have a tremble. See, we're going we're to respond to all of who God is in different kinds of ways. God's kindness and love and mercy, we will respond in awe and wonder. But there is another kind of response that sometimes people don't think is good. And God says it's good. There is a way of responding, of recognizing that which is awesome and having trepidation. Listen, there's a kind of fear that is not dreadful. It's beautiful. We know this. We seek these things. That's why we ride roller coasters. There's a, there's a kind of something that isn't light, but it's desirable. God is to be feared, but not, we are not to treat him chummy. It's never light to be in his presence, but it is something altogether joyful. When we are in the presence of God, you will gasp, you will shudder, you will tremble, and everybody from the Bible who ever came nearer to God than what we're allowed to be right now, what we get to see on a day-to-day -day basis, every single one of them had the same experience. The angels in heaven were told about those seraphim, six wings. With two, they fly. We get that. With two, they cover their feet. Why do they do that? For the same reason that Moses was told to remove the sandals from his feet because the place where he was, was holy. And with two, they cover their eyes. Why do they cover their eyes? Because he is greater and more terrifying than you have ever comprehended. But in a good and joyful kind of way. 
every human from scripture that we ever see encounter God responds in a way that shows this is beyond anything we've ever experienced in this world. To fear God is simply to esteem him in the right way. Fearing God now is beginning to believe that. It's beginning to understand and to feel it more deeply. Because listen to me, friends, in the end, everybody's going to fear God. In the end, those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will see the return of Christ. They will see that sky split open like a scroll, Jesus coming on the clouds of glory, and everyone will shudder. Those who mocked him and thought so lightly of him will begin to tremble and bawl Why those who love him will rejoice, but will still feel fear. Every knee will bow either in joy or in defeat, but everybody's gonna fear God. Fearing him now is beginning to believe and feel and understand this. God is holy and there's a right response to his holiness. It is to tremble before the one who is great. And by the way, this includes the Christian. Sometimes there's this idea that once you become a Christian, you're supposed to lose all fear. And, and, and let me tell you this, that's, that's only partially true. There is a kind of fear that we are to lose. So for instance, 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves judgment. Romans 8 says, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption. So there is a way that we are to lose fear, but understand there's more than a dozen, there are more than a dozen passages that show us that even as Christians, we are to fear God. Here's a good one. If your personal Bible study has been stale for a little while, spend the week studying 2 Corinthians 7.1. And it talks about we are to complete holiness, keep pressing on to kill sin, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Meaning our understanding of how great he is, is to inspire and lead us to kill sin. So which is it? Like, is the Christian supposed to fear or not fear? Remember the New Testament says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what that means is this, friend. Do not presume upon the grace of God and think that you're a Christian just because you say you're a Christian, just because you think that you are. You have to see, does my life match what the Bible says a real Christian's life will match? That's why there's almost 20 passages dealing with that kind of thing right there. Examine yourselves, test the fruit. Do I have I truly turned from my sin? Have I truly trusted in Christ and Christ alone? Does my life show the fruit of a true Christian? Jesus said, not everyone one who said, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. Why does he give that warning? A warning implies a kind of fear. The Christian is to remain vigilant and keep a fear of falling. But listen to me, when you come to a place of confidence, God does want every Christian to come to a place of confidence. When you come to examine your life and see that you're walking in the light, not in perfection, but in the paths of righteousness, if you truly evaluate, all right, according to Bible standards, I can have confidence. God wants you day by day to lose your fear of condemnation, but to grow in your fear of Him. The fear of God we are to have as Christians is not that of daily terror, but that of joyful 
and even anticipating sense of his awesomeness, sense of his greatness. Parents, let me, let me say just a quick word of application to you. It's a real temptation sometimes when we're presenting God and the gospel to our children to want to show them all of the love and kindness and mercy of God because we want them to want God. But sometimes there's that route of hiding the true character of God's holiness and wrath from them. But let me tell you what that is doing. That is presenting a false God. It is creating idols in their hearts. You know, you give them the little Noah coloring page and there's a smiling camel and a smiling Noah. And we hide the part where people drown to death by the wrath of God. Don't hide it. It's all good and it's all desirable. Listen to me, that, that wussified version of God is creating a false religion in American churches. Give them, give your kids all of him because it's all awesome. It's all good, it's all glorious, and it's all desirable. And listen to me, when you show them his holiness and his wrath, and then they understand his mercy, now you're creating something that they will love him because they understand his full mercy. Trust God. Trust that he's good. Friend, you and I have sinned by failing to seek God and failing to fear God. I say that to everyone in this room, myself, Christian and unbeliever, we have sinned by failing to recognize him and respond to him. And listen, the scripture tells you that if you are not saved, then you really are facing an eternity of the wrath of God in hell. And yet even as I say that, it's possible that some of you, as you hear it, you're thinking to yourself, preacher, you don't know me. <laughs> I know you're saying all this. That's people out there. Me, I'm, I'm good. I've got a good heart, all this. I have nothing to fear. And even as you say it, the very thing that scripture says is being fulfilled in your own heart. If you are hearing the message that you must be saved or there is hell and you are saying, I have nothing to fear, you are doing verse 18. You have reason to fear. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this living God who is a consuming fire and has wrath is a God of infinite mercy as well. And in his mercy, he sent his son to bleed and die and raise from the dead to pay the justice price for sins. And now if you will receive Christ by faith, recognizing your need, to be saved and you come to him, call out to him in faith, the Bible says you will be delivered out of that wrath and into his kindness. And you will know his love and mercy in eternal life. If that is your desire this morning, let me give you the invitation. Come find me before you leave. Just let me talk and show you more from scripture. Ask your questions. If you want to see it from the Bible, whatever it is, don't be nervous. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Oh God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Bring glory to yourself. Father, I, I just beg that the truths we've looked at will continue to affect us 
and hit us and pierce us so that you keep showing us more of who you are, oh God. I pray for this room, any who are unconverted, God, I pray just even right now, right now, they be born again. That they trust in you and call out to you in their hearts right now, oh God. Father, make us a changed people and us as a church family, bless us as we leave this place to go out and live for your glory and honor you, oh God. Grow us in the fear of you and in our desire for you. We love you and ask these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, Our Foremost Evil. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.